Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 6 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, in episode 6, we are looking at Excalibur number 6, Goblin Knight, originally published in March 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on penciling and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Excalibur! Into the spine of the dragon! The sword of land! Yes, Merlin, that's it. Set the world to rights. Call the dragon. Mend the sword. Speak the charm of making. This is our first event issue. It's the first of two tie-ins with the event Inferno. In the briefest possible terms, Inferno was technically a company-wide but mostly X-Men franchise crossover involving a war between demons that transforms Manhattan into a hellscape. Major players were Ileana Rasputin, aka Magic, who's transformed into a demonic dark child before reverting to her seven-year-old self, and Madeline Pryor, the spurned wife of Scott Summers slash Cyclops, who is also a clone of Jean Grey created by Mr. Sinister. Madeline makes a deal with a demon to become the Goblin queen and does a whole bunch of dastardly things for at least somewhat sympathetic reasons. We've got a great guest to help us navigate this hellscape who I will introduce in a moment. But first, we'll introduce the usual team, starting with myself. I'm Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a writer, talker, PhD haver, occasional university instructor, a person who likes talking about representations of sex and gender in comics, and Kurt Bogner's still not quite official PR manager. And as I always forget to mention, I am the host, along with Andrew, of another podcast called Three Panel Contrast, in which we do monthly analysis of comics classics so we encourage all of our listeners who enjoy this podcast to check out that podcast as well mav if you would like to introduce yourself hi my name is christopher maverick you can call me mav uh i am uh, many 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 things but <laughs> i'm a lifelong comic fan i am the host of another podcast called vox popcast where we talk about pop culture including comics i am a something year phd student trying to finish my dissertation right now an adjunct professor at duquesne university and mount aloysius college in the United States, and I am excited to talk about this comic today, which I say almost every week, but this one, this is a good one for me. Okay, well, I'm excited. Andrew, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a lecturer at St. Jerome's University at the campus of the University of Waterloo. Um, I am also the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big study of Chris Claremont's stuff with a social media presence. 
attached to it. And I'm on Three Panel Contrast. <laughs> yes, uh, you are the co-host of Three Panel Contrast with me and uh, another wonderful co-host, Michael Hancock. And if I'm not mistaken, you submitted your book manuscript based on work for the Claremont Run just last week. I did. That was four years in the making. So I'm... Wow. I'm in a weird plummet right now where I don't know what to do with myself. I think I can say this on mic. If I decide that it's not okay, we'll edit it out. But I was asked to review the book, which I obviously can't do because we're too close of friends and have two podcasts together and I've contributed work to your project. (laughs) But it is going to get, I'm certain, very positive reviews and I'm going to be the hugest booster of it when it comes out. So congratulations, Andrew. So as I mentioned, we are joined by a very exciting guest today. We have with us Laura Grafton. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. Laura is an independent scholar and freelance writer who studied comics at the University of Waterloo. Laura has written a guest blog for the Birthing Space Parenting Blog and co-wrote the Middle Space's Most Viewed article of 2020 with Andrew titled Harley Quinn's Sexuality, A Tale of Three Lusts. We will certainly have a link to that in the show notes. She also maintains creative writing, parenting, and popular culture critique blogs on WordPress, which we will also link in our notes. And when she isn't writing, she works in the charitable sector, supporting fundraising for local and international causes. So, Laura, I have to put this question to you first, which we put to all of our guests, which is, is this your first time encountering Excalibur? It is my first time encountering Excalibur. I have been reading along with the podcast, so I'm on, like, issue three-ish, based on what you have made public so far at the date of the recording, uh, and then jumped ahead to read Excalibur number six and guest with you guys. So, uh, yeah, this is my first read-through of it. <laughs> Excellent. And do you have some prior familiarity with kind of X-Men comics? I mean, you, you clearly have some prior familiarity with superheroes because you wrote the Harlequin piece. Oh, yeah. I, I would say that most of my familiarity with superheroes actually lives in the DC universe. I'm an occasional Marvel reader, but not a regular one. I do have some X-Men uh, experience and history. I did a uh, amateur recording on the Claremont run uh, for Madeline Pryor's character a while back. Um, and I pick up X-Men kind of here and there, but not necessarily a bread and butter reader, so to speak. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, I'm going to ask you for your first impressions in a moment, but before we do that, I think we'll do our issue summary and get back to that. I know we've got some listeners like Laura who've been reading along with the pod, and as always, we've been posting lots of images to our social media channels, but for those of you who may think that image you have in your mind of Captain Britain punching a sentient evil car that explodes in a pool of human blood is just a weird childhood nightmare, (laughs) we'll start with some issue summary. Excalibur number six, Goblin Knight, opens at the Braddock Lighthouse, where Rachel Summers is in the throes of a nightmare involving demons and her family slash not family, including Jean Grey and Madeline Pryor and Madeline's son Nate, the future Cable. She wakes in a panic, screaming Mom and Nathan before lashing herself through every floor of the lighthouse, including Brian and Megan's round bed, in a fiery blaze of glory that rends an enormous hole through the entire building. Once outside, she takes off. Everyone's obviously awake after that, and while Brian, Megan, and Kurt are unharmed, Kitty's initially missing. They find her in the room she shares with Rachel in a bassinet and dressed like a baby. Rachel has apparently reconstituted Kitty's clothes amid her panicked response to Nathan's cry for help. After a brief debate, Kurt declares the team will follow Rachel to New York. Because they don't have a plane, Megan and Brian will fly them there. From there, we cut to London, where Di Thomas of Scotland Yard is meeting a couple of new recurring characters. Brigadier Alessand Stewart of the Weird Happenings organization and her brother Alistair Stewart, a science type who also works for Weird Happenings. The Stewarts show Thomas a steam-powered locomotive from a different reality where the Nazis won the war. Thomas is skeptical until the Stewarts introduce Nazi versions 
versions of Moira McTaggart and Callisto, who've jumped dimensions along with the train. Meanwhile, Rachel arrives in New York, where she's smacked down by Goblin Queen Madeline before nearly being consumed by a liquefied wall of the demonically transformed Empire State Building, which is really a writhing mass of humans who've also been transformed into demons. It's pretty horrific. Rachel resists the urge to submit to being possessed and fights her way free, eventually crashing through the window of a bridal boutique with a mannequin that looks a lot like her. Elsewhere, the other members of Excalibur are flying across the Atlantic and dealing with their own crises, namely finding Kitty somewhere to pee. Megan and Brian land them on a barge, but in the brief time it takes Kitty to realize the bathroom is too gross to use, tensions start to boil over when the sailors react to Megan and she begins to react to them, transforming into an even sexier version of herself in response to their leering desire. Brian doesn't notice, but Kurt certainly does and puts a stop to things. When Megan flies off Carrie and Kurt, she transforms again into a blue, golden-eyed version of him, much as we saw her do back in issue number four when she nearly kissed him. Finally, Excalibur arrive in Manhattan. They split up, with Kitty and Brian sent to investigate the streets, while Kurt and Megan head for the demonic Empire State Building. Neither pair lasts very long before being affected by the Inferno. Megan immediately gives herself over to the demon Nestir and is transformed into the Goblin Princess. This leaves Kurt to fight himself free of a horde of demons and then jump off the Empire State Building. He lands messily at the feet of that mannequin that looks a lot like Rachel. Next, Megan goes after Brian and Kitty, who get sucked into a movie theater where they're transformed into 80s action movie cliches, complete with fatigues and headbands and enormous guns. The issue ends with a seemingly brainwashed shirtless Brian threatening Kitty with one of the aforementioned enormous guns. This was a bit of a hard issue to summarize, had a little bit of a trouble even getting through that summary, because even though a lot happens in this issue, I feel like it eludes traditional plot summary in some ways, because there's a lot of character development stuff in between all of this zaniness that happens, which I think is actually the meat of this particular story. But let's start with some first impressions, starting with you, Laura. You're a newbie to Excalibur, you've read a few issues by this point, and Excalibur takes a very dramatic kind of tonal shift in this issue. I mean, it does and it doesn't, but let's just start with what were your first impressions to encountering this issue? I was surprised by how soapy this issue was. Like, it wasn't Ah. your typical... Like, it wasn't your typical superhero story at all. It was all this relationship information and this real world kind of like everything from the love triangle between Nightcrawler and Captain Britain and Megan and looking at like, oh, the superheroes have to stop and go to the bathroom on their way to New York. (laughs) So good. When does that even happen? (laughs) I I have a five-year-old son who literally the morning I was reading it for the first time was like, mom, why does nobody ever go to the bathroom in comics? And then I read this issue and it's like, well they do but (laughs) never in anything that's not soapy yeah and so that really caught me off guard in a good way for the most part and I absolutely was in love with the art this issue it was so interesting the way in which like all Megan's transformations still keep some base core of Megan in her and you know the way Nightcrawler is rendered just is impressive right like I you talk about please please go on yes right you talk about having a crush on him and and, like this issue I get why like he's got like that macho like soapy like half open shirt going on with his abs (laughs) showing half the time and you're sitting there and going like yeah no I totally hit that monster right like (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Oh, that's going to be put on our social media feed. I totally hit that monster. That should be a... That should be a t-shirt for the podcast. It should be. It should be. <laughs> yeah, this is the first appearance of Kurt's sexy pajamas, I believe. We've talked about the sexy yes. pajamas a little bit before, but these are his <laughs> low-cut shirt, sexy pajamas. Oh, yes. Yes. She's not wrong. It's a great I mean. first appearance for them, right? Like, I love it. <laughs> Strong showing from Kurt. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, what about the rest of you? First impressions, memories of reading these issues for the first time. Andrew, I know that you have a particular affection for the Inferno event, so I'm looking forward to kind of discussing with you how this fits into that larger context. But maybe we'll start with you then, Andrew. First impressions to this issue, things that stood out upon rereading or any memories of seeing it the first time? Yeah, it's always been an outlier for me to that Inferno story, which is largely about um, sort of the, the Dante theme of um, reckoning, mm. uh, of being confronted with your bad choices. And Excalibur doesn't really have that going. It's very tonally different. It's more playing up the horror. Like that scene where um, Megan is coming to the arms of Mystere while Nightcrawler watches. That's a Frank Frazetta painting, right? That, yeah. That's something you would find on like a cover of Eerie in the 1950s or something like that. Um, so it's totally inconsistent. But the one thing I really want to point out is that like the writer is the same guy who plotted Inferno. It is yeah. intentional that he is keeping them separate from mm -hmm. that main narrative. Um, so I, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind going forward, right? That this was an easy opportunity to reunite them. He did not want to reunite the X-Men with Excalibur. Yeah, that's a really good point. And yeah, I think we'll probably get more into sort of the intertexts with the other X-Men books when we talk in the next issue, which is going to get even more sort of into the Inferno event and into the Inferno context. But yeah, definitely, I want to talk a little bit about the politics of crossovers a little bit. But what about you, Mav? Reactions to rereading this? Memories of encountering it the first time? Much the same. So I, I mean, I remember reading it the first time and it being weird for sort of the reason that Andrew was just hinting at. Crossovers are weird. Crossovers were especially weird in this time period because, you know, the first mega crossover, it had only been four years, like since Secret Wars. Mm -hmm. This is a new concept, right? And they're figuring out how they want to do it. And exactly what Andrew just said is what I remember re thinking when I read this originally. Why are they here? They don't matter to the storyline of Inferno like at all. You've made Megan into the Goblin Princess and that's going to matter in this issue of Excalibur. It's going to matter in the next issue of Excalibur. It's going to come back two years from now. But as far as the major crossover of the rest of Inferno, if there's one part of Inferno that you can just leave out, if you're if you're a fan of X-Men, you don't have to read right. this. You would never know that there was a Goblin Princess. You would never know that Nightcrawler and Kitty and Rachel, who are the X-Men's friends, are there. Now, if you're reading X-Factor, you're going to see crossover with X-Men. If you're reading New Minutes, you're going to see crossover. But Excalibur is very much on the outskirts of this, which made it weird at the time. But like looking back on it now, I like this because it is the one aspect of this storyline which makes me feel like the world is lived in. When they did Fall of the Mutants, if you weren't reading one of the crossover books, you'd have no idea that there was a Fall of the Mutants going on. Even today when you do crossovers, if you're not part of the Spider Island event, what do you mean that time that everybody on, you know, on Manhattan became <laughs> became a venom like you'd never know no other comic talks about it this is talking about the ramifications of an event that they did not cause nightcrawler kitty and rachel largely have no idea what's going on but they have to deal with the ramifications anyway and it makes the world feel complete yeah because laura was mentioning sort of the soapiness of it and definitely that stands out to me as different from most of the other issues in the inferno crossover which as much as i like parts of the inferno crossover there are times in some of the main storyline books where it's a lot of saying what's happening <laughs> rather than mm -hmm. sort of sophisticated character interactions. <laughs> Things get a little bit hairy in that larger crossover. I was going to say the other non-essential one is probably something like the Daredevil issues of Inferno. And yet if you didn't read those, yeah. you would miss out on Johnny Storm trying to take over a Daredevil's role by putting on a t-shirt that says bad and going into the bar where Daredevil <laughs> usually hangs out to try to intimidate everyone. Which 
which is a classic moment in comicdom that I encourage everybody to check out. <laughs> but um, maybe let's start in terms of talking about the themes of the issue, start talking about sort of the meaning of demons. Like Andrew, you mentioned some of the thematics of the larger Inferno event as being sort of a reckoning, right? And demons are often used to sort of reckon with sort of internal character tensions, sort of things about good and bad within characters and desires and regrets and all of these larger things. We're literature scholars, we should be able to talk about these things. <laughs> Better than I did, just did probably. But um, what's 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 the symbology of demons within this event, and how do we see it playing out in this issue? Do we see characters confronting their demons, and what do demons symbolize? I mean, they're both embodied, and it's a metaphorical thing as well. So, how do we see that represented here? Okay, so there's lots of sides to this, but the main ones would be that like demons are typically personifications of guilt. Um, they are the thing you did wrong is mad at you, and it's going to hurt you for the thing that you did wrong. It's pretty simple. Um, but they can also be um particularly sub textually symbols of desire mm -hmm. uh, the idea of like the it the repressed part of you that you you constantly squash that you want to give voice to and give body to and i think inferno is playing with both of those we have that with megan pretty clearly um but again that like guilt element doesn't really work for excalibur because we talked about this when we talked about um i think issue one they don't have that guilty conscience they're the ones who are in the right they have the moral high ground here so like what they had to be ashamed of other than again kurt is hiding brian's affair and brian is having an affair that maybe comes out in the next issue i don't think it has time to really develop here so we're mostly focusing on um the idea of the unrepressed uh, and i think that's sort of the main theme here that connects really nicely to all the sexual subtext stuff that we keep talking about in excalibur uh, and we'll carry it into the next issue do we think it's significant that certain characters are affected by the inferno and certain characters aren't i mean kurt doesn't seem to be affected at all which i find interesting yeah it's, it's again a cipher right it's, it's revealing which characters are you know, I'm battling the most repressed desires or then which characters are, you know, shadier than others, I think. <laughs> Thoughts, Laura or Mav, the symbology of demons in this issue? Yeah, definitely. I think it speaks a lot to, as Andrew was saying, the characters that are struggling the most with their sense of identity, with their sense of who they are, with what they are or aren't repressing with what they are or aren't hiding. Obviously, you see that as a trend with Megan throughout the entire issue because she is just constantly transforming forming to appease the whim of the strongest personality in the room throughout the issue. She transforms into something even more luscious and Barbie doll beautiful than she already is while the sailors are sitting catcalling her. She mirrors Nightcrawler while they're having this discussion about what it means to be who you are. And she immediately demonizes the second that she gets anywhere near the Empire State Building and the swarm of demons and just goes with the flow of like, this is what the popular people are doing right now. This is what the strongest ego in the room is doing right now. So I'm going to try on that personality and see what's happening. And then Captain Britain kind of some coming to it when he's got this secret of having the affair from the last issue and where their relationship is obviously just not good and him turning into this like super macho military guy that everybody is terrified of that speaks to kind of this abusive nature that he has in his relationship with Megan, I think is really significant. And like looking at Nightcrawler in previous discussions, we've been talking about you've been talking about whether or not he's the leader of the team or not and him having the wherewithal to really stand up to not get sucked into the demons and really be the only person that doesn't get sucked into a storyline at all because kitty gets sucked into brian's storyline right and being able to like make that call that like no i'm not gonna go play with my demons i'm gonna step back i'm gonna take this plunge
one off the edge, I'm going to choose to put my physical health at risk instead of putting my mental well-being at risk and go and see this because I do have control of who I am and what I want and what I desire. Um, I think that's significant and it speaks to his status as a leader on the team and it speaks to kind of his ability to mentally hold the team together and that role that he's taken on. I love that just as a gimmick of Kurt too. There's been a number of comics where, you know, demon figures have tried to seduce him and he's just like, yeah, no, I'm good. <laughs> right? Like he's he's already monster enough and he knows it, right? Like he just owns his monstrousness and is like, nah, we good. I don't know. I like to think about it as sort of a reflection of his self-acceptance that he's not tempted by mm-hmm. demonic contexts, that it's just like mm-hmm. he is. It's not that he's like a saintly character because I think that's a sort of a mis, you know, nomer for him because he's certainly a character who has internal conflicts and problems and doesn't always do the right thing. And when we talked about him covering up Ryan's affair already and, and you know, being involved in an affair potentially. But at the same time, he's very like incorruptible. And I mean, that's always what I think is one of the major missteps of that Kurt with Belasco storyline that I know Andrew has talked about on Claremont Run before where he's corrupted by Belasco. And I think you said something in a text, Jade, to me, Andrew, that the huge misstep of that storyline is that Kurt would obviously rather die than be corrupted. And I was like, yes, obviously. Yeah. That's such a that's such a yeah. bad character read. He is like, would never be corrupted in that way. And yet, you know, that's a story, obviously, that's part of continuity now, mm-hmm. so we have to deal with it. <laughs> Mav, <laughs> Mav, thoughts about I, demons and symbols? Yeah. Well, I'll start with Kurt because I that's where we are right now. But I think that there's two things happening here. First, this is his definitive, I am the leader of Excalibur. And this is what we talked a few episodes ago about, you know, who is the leader, who is the leader. Kurt has his Captain America speech here where he he literally goes, um, the answer is obvious. Megan and Brian can fly us. Everyone get dressed. I want us on our way within the hour. Mm-hmm. Like this is, he's just doing a Steve Rogers or his best impression. And then he does the same thing when they land on the boat. He's looking at the map. He has taken this role upon himself. And I think the reason he's able to do that, even after they get to New York is he's not corruptible in this sense because aside from just his appearance Kurt is constantly dealing with his demons that's part of his character he is always trying to you know what can I do to be more human we've t- we've talked about you know his need to be likable his need to be the leader his need to be taken seriously everything about him up until this point is sort of dealing with the seduction that Megan and Rachel especially are being confronted with right here then if I look at Megan, um, she's the one who's most interesting to me, not only, you know, once she gets to the Inferno, but um, we were talking about the way in which she chameleons into the desires of, you know, whatever the alpha male who's looking at her at this moment are. But she makes a, a very important comment when they're on the boat. And she notices after feeling neglected by Brian, these last three issues in favor of Courtney, she notices that the, the sailors are, are looking at her. It's not like with Kurt, where she sort of was having fun and incidentally changed when they were about to kiss she sees them going yum 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 and then she says they aren't ignoring me they like me i want to like them in return Mm -hmm. so whether or not she's a slave to her her empathic powers or not she is very clearly aware of them and you know i don't know if i I don't know how to address the question of her agency as to whether she can stop herself or not but she is making a conscious choice subconsciously (laughs) if that makes any sense to like participate in this sort of you know know this sort of chameleon act 
as she transforms. And that leads me to wonder when she does it three pages later with Nightcrawler again, is she doing this consciously? It's not just that she doesn't know that she just turned blue. She apparently does. She apparently knows when people like her and she apparently is choosing, or I don't know if she can stop herself, but she is choosing to acknowledge that, um, that she is becoming the object of that person's gaze. Um, she certainly knows that she does it with Brian. Kurt wonders if that's even the way she dresses with her nighty. you want to talk sexy pajamas with her nighty earlier on, you know, she's doing this thing to impress her man and she's doing this thing to impress random sailors she just met. So I assume that she's doing it with Kurt so that when she meets Nastra at the end, he says, do you wish to help me? She says, yes, please. Yeah. Like she's just, she jumps in that. Yes, please means so much to me. She jumps into this with both feet. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, uh, she's like, oh yeah, I'm here. Okay. I'm, we're going to be evil now. And she ends up with, you know, gazy as it may be the absolute best costume that came out of Inferno yes. is, is the Goblin Prince's outfit. I understand why it's not her outfit for the rest of the run. I understand why. I'm mean, okay. The hair is very eighties. There's, there's a lot going on with the hair, <laughs> but, but I understand why this costume does not work for the character of Megan as we normally see her. But as far as when you're told to design a male gazy costume for this demonic possession storyline, you end up with the Goblin Queen Madeline Pryor outfit of look, what do I have to get cover in order to reach code approval? And the rest is just boob. And then Megan's outfit, Davis just went all out here. He's like, okay, I'm going to make this work. This is going to be something that makes sense. I don't know how it how it holds to her body, but it makes sense as an outfit and it is aesthetically interesting. So I love what she's done. And then Rachel, Rachel is just doing what she's what she's always done. Rachel, since the body shop in the Munich Massacre on our on our episode zero, she is still trying to, she's constantly trying to be her own person, but also what can I be remade into to be like her idealized vision of what Jean Grey is supposed to be. Yeah, I want to get to the significance of her interacting with that bridal boutique version of herself. But in terms of maybe just getting a little bit more specific about what's being offered Megan and Rachel in terms of desire here, because they both are seduced by Inferno. And I mean, Megan is immediately seduced by Inferno, but Rachel has sort of a more drawn out scene where she's seduced by this wall that's trying to swallow her. And she has a very, there's a panel where in which she has a very sort of almost expression of sort of orgiastic bliss as she's yeah. sinking into the wall and then makes the decision to resist. What is Rachel being promised here? What is tempting for her? Is it giving up identity? Is it the idea of not having to fight? Like, what is she being tempted with here specifically? I would say belonging in community is a big thing for her. Just being uh, a part okay. of something mm -hmm. bigger. And, and a family, obviously marriage kind of leans into that a little bit. When she sees Madeline, she shouts mom, which is incredibly weird because Rachel has met Madeline several times. Um, but she's now identifying her as mom. She's seeking family. That's literally what brought her across the ocean was this promise to Nathan. So I, I think she just wants to lose that sort of staunch individualism that is defining her so far in Excalibur to some degree, even if just for a moment. But again, I think that's what Inferno offers is indulgence rather than alteration entirely. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, what do you think, Laura, about the bridal imagery? What do you think's going on there? Is this like a haunting version of Rachel? Like, is this like a nightmare version of herself? Is this a dream self? What do you think that bridal imagery is doing for us? Yeah, so the bridal imagery is great because it looks at, again, it speaks to Rachel wanting to be a part of that community, a part of the normal that she just so clearly is not, both as a mutant and through the queer subtext that we've seen throughout. 
But that's the horror show that she's falling into right now. It's the desire to be a part of the community, a desire to be a part of the mob, the difficulty she has withdrawing herself from the grasps of the various people that are turning into these demons. And then she just falls back into the bridal shop and into society's expectations and into everything that she is struggling with as anyone would be when coming across questions of sexuality, especially during this time period. And it just becomes very representative of that whole struggle of the queer coding of that push and pull between who she is as a person and what she desires of family and community and support and what she might not get or might be afraid of not getting as a result of leaning into this otherness that she so clearly possesses. It's interesting her reaction to it, right? Because she does have a very sort of horrified reaction to it, right? Like for her to specifically crash into a window that says bride and groom and then to see herself in the white dress in this traditional mode gotta resonate with the queer context of this character a little bit, right? That links back to the wall as well. You know, we said, you know, her being tempted with the idea of subsuming her individual unique identity that she can't escape, having that subsumed into this clutch of bodies which I mean mm -hmm. can we talk about how horrific that living wall really is and like I mean just some of the horror of this space in general I mean we see Kitty phasing the car which is a move that she pulled off in what was it mm -hmm. back in Excalibur number three as well she does the same move here and yet Brian punches the car and then it's filled with human blood because it's a transformed person oh go for it Matt yeah with Rachel wanting to belong I think the issue sets this up from the very beginning you know we're still we're only on issue six right now right so we're still doing this thing where we're trying to make sure that all the readers know who all these people are and maybe you haven't read days of future past maybe you haven't been reading x-men for years so this story opens with narration we have a shot of the lighthouse and it says home word never had much meaning for rachel summers cram full to bursting with memories that make no sense of worlds and times that can't possibly exist or once did or never will so she doesn't bother with what was only what is the life she's living her friends the teammates of excalibur her family and then we move into this thing that Anna described um, earlier where she's visualizing Jean and Madeline and Nathan but it's giving you the context that if you don't know about Rachel Summers she comes from a future that she knows can't come to be Day Days of Future Past her first storyline was essentially her setting about creating a world where she'll never be born so she is not only a woman out outside of time she is a woman whose time will just never come and she knows this she's aware of it she always lives in the moment the reason she disappeared from the X-Men was trying to find herself and she doesn't have a sense of belonging. So when you have the scene of this wall enveloping her with other people who want her there, it's horrific for us as readers, but there's got to be in the same way that Megan is enticed by just sort of wanting to be noticed by, you know, by any man wanting to be loved. This is a wall that disgusting as it is, wants Rachel to belong. It's asking her to be a part of something, you know, figuratively and literally. Yeah, oh, that's so lovely. I love that. I mean, well, it is really tragic, but I mean, it's like really lovely too in terms of an exploration of her character. Well, she's got this moment where she smiles. Like there's a, like there's when she first gets- Yeah, that was the orgiastic panel I was thinking yeah. of. Yeah, she smiles and uh, oh my God, this is everything. Wait a minute, what am I doing? You know, there's, there's this moment of almost acceptance before she fights her way out. And I think that, you know, it's very tricky to write Rachel. She's, you know, she's a literal God on this team. She is a cosmic being who has all the 
power in the world. So you, we've talked about this before. We really have to take her off the board very frequently by, you know, manipulating her emotions and giving her trauma that she can't deal with because, you know, the first thing she does in this book is rearrange the molecular structure of Kitty's clothing. <laughs> She's got a lot of powers, a lot of physical power. So it's got to be emotional trauma that gives her a conflict. Can we talk about the scene where she busts out of the wall too and just sort of the visualization of that and what we make of it? Because it's very sexualized, but I think it's sexualized in an interesting way. I mean, she looks very powerful here as well. And it's one of those sort of mixtures of sexuality and power. And I wondered if, Laura, did you have any thoughts about this scene in terms of what do we think is going on with sort of the sexualization of this scene? Do we find this sort of a positive element of the scene, sort of a problematic element of the scene? Does it add to our understanding of Rachel's character? I'm thinking about the scene where she has the sort of sm orgiastic smile on the upper left and then is bursting out of the wall. Yeah, so it's, it's just such a weird scene because she's trying to burst out from this like sense of community that she clearly wants. We see the the smile, we see the comments, see told you she'd love it as she relaxes into this um, and then pulling herself out and in a way that isn't using like her powers, so to speak. Like we saw her flame out of the lighthouse. We've seen her flame out of hundreds of other things, but her flame kind of ignites at the back of her head and almost seems to get like quelled or like extinguished by a segment of the wall. And she just seems so powerless to fight against this thing, the sense of community, this sexual perverse whatever that's causing her this sense of pleasure and has to like very physically overcome and fully extract herself before she does actually become Phoenix and flame out again, right? Which is just such an interesting thing. And then she gets all this pleasure from the moment of I'm free, I'm finally free, but doesn't seem in control of that freedom. And then she plummets down and into the bridal shop, right? And it's just so, it, it speaks to that sense of the overwhelming desire and the temptation of the demons and the, like how strong that pull and that need for community seems to be for her that she has such a trouble breaking out and doesn't really even seem to want to because she just breaks out and falls right back into a different segment of that temptation. I mean, maybe it's something about sort of the sexualization of the imagery has something to do with, you know, it is that mixture of kind of power and sexuality and seduction and resistance. It's just the way that the wall is holding her, you know, some of the hands are sort of holding the side of her breasts as she's sort of arching her back upwards, right? It is very sexualized. And yet it's emphasizing her power very dramatically too, for exactly the reasons you're saying, right? She's not using her sort of hands-off strike a pose and point powers she's using like her physical self we see her physical muscles straining we see the effort on her face right and to have that really emphasized and drawn out i think is part of what makes it powerful despite what we might think of some of the exploitative potentially sexualization of the scene that wall of hands thing he did that before it's in asgardian wars there's a, a new mutants thing where there's a wall of hands that holds oyana talk about that that's interesting tell us about it uh, okay so in, in asgardian wars um in the new mutant saga a, a portion of that. Ilyana gets captured by the Enchantress from um, Thor's world, Asgard. Uh, and there's a, a wall of hands that holds her. And it's Art Adams who does a lot of cheesecake, like like a lot of cheesecake. And it, it's one of the more uncomfortable images, uh, maybe in the history of New Mutants, but it's clearly extraordinarily sexual. Now, how much Claremont informed Adams' rendering, I don't know. But as I said, he, he likes this metaphor, this idea of the 
all these different hands coming from nowhere holding on to someone and if we're being honest it's probably sexual it's definitely got an orgy feel to it right like and the placement of the hands on her body and the positioning of her body right mm -hmm. i mean the hands are grabbing her in certain places but i mean what do you make then of that cheesecake element of this scene andrew do you think it's additive or do you think it's taking away from rachel's power in this scene oh no i think it's a hundred percent necessary for the context of inferno that combination mm -hmm. of um you know sex id possibly even shame on some level like, like i think that's gotta be there otherwise you're not going to get that engagement it, it could be more equal i mean we see that in the next issue with brian being starting to get sexualized a little bit more just yeah. as we talked about kurt being sexualized in this one um but but no i, I think this is a situation where you definitely want some sexual imagery i mean yeah it's when we talk about sort of sexualized imagery being sort of i mean i never want to get back to things being sort of positive and negative because representation is always far more complicated than that right. but there are instances in which sexualized imagery you know, even if it's potentially exploitative imagery can be productive if it's additive to the story, right? If we're going to tell this story about a sexualized seduction of Rachel and sort of articulate her temptation into normality and then show her resistance to that temptation, that can be a very powerful way of using sexualized imagery to do something that is subverting sort of some of the simplicity that that imagery can sometimes fall back into. Because, you know, again, we talked about this relating to sort of her struggles as a queer character and stuff, right? So we are learning things about about her character through the sexualized nature of the imagery. And I think that's one of the ways that that kind of imagery can be additive rather than reductive. Yeah, especially with Megan too, as the goblin princess, right? We're, we're getting that exact same component because I mean, we've established her as kind of this passive sexual object. Empowering her sexually makes a lot of sense. And I think the costume is a great way to kind of signal that. And I mean, I want to get back to the question of like, yeah, what is Megan being tempted with? Because I sort of have this theory about like, you know, she's almost being tempted with, because if it goes back to her conversation with Kurt, as well that you know when she has the conversation with him and like she likes him because he knows who he is and she finds that comforting it's because like she wants to know who she is and to be given this sense of purpose yeah do you think it's possible to read Megan metatextually as a sort of commentary and I don't think it necessarily on Claremont's intention but uh, a metatextual commentary on how women in comics are stylized according to the desires of a male gaze and how it's damaging to them I mean that's a big question do you want to sort of explain how you how you think she might be resisting that because I feel like you're sort of looking for a particular answer okay so she's she's sexualized according to the desires of the men who she's around right and their gaze specifically and we see that that sexual gaze does two things it hurts her a lot uh and takes away her agency um and then the other aspect of it is it actually makes her inhuman in a way that is counterproductive like when brian says i can't talk to her she's not my intellectual equal all that kind of stuff i don't know i just think there's a, like i don't think it's a good reading i just think it's a fun reading uh to think about how megan reflects kind of a, a broader trope of women in comedy well, I think you could read it that way. I think especially in this issue, I really read Megan more as the kind of classic women in that toxic relationship, in that abusive relationship. You see it um, in other things like with Har Harley Quinn as well, when we've done work on her, you get these women that kind of conform to the people around them in some way that become the giggle girls when they're supposed to be the giggle girls, that become right. the like strong wolf-like creature when they need to be that strong wolf like creature that become whatever and mirror the people around them as almost a survival mechanism because they are so used to needing to get on their abuser's good side on their toxic partner's good side that they just naturally then take that on to all the rest of their relationships and they pull in the parts of them that Nightcrawler wants to see in order to attract him in order to bring that sense of safety that sense of security that he potentially brings with him in order 
order to bring the demons onto her side. Like if what Mav was saying earlier about her having some agency in this subconscious shifting, then to get on the demon's good side in order to get rid of the demons is a potential way for her to be playing this transformation. And it just more speaks to that reading of this character as that abused woman for me than it does to a potential commentary on the way women are seen in comics. Like I, I do see your point and get how you could read it that way, but it's not the strongest reading for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I have a hard time going quite like as far as like Andrew, you're suggesting that we go with it, but I do also think it's a potentially interesting reading. I mean, Kurt says it's a defense mechanism and it's implied that he's correct, right? So that supports that reading. And then the other aspect of it is Megan doesn't know who she is. She expresses that. She doesn't know what the real thing is because she's constantly doing the chameleon thing that you're talking about. So again, you're you're distancing someone from their humanity. So we've been talking a lot about Rachel's motivations and her temptations and what she's tempted with and what she's fighting against. What is Megan being tempted with here where she, you know, very easily <laughs> submits her will to the demon, which makes sense in terms of, you know, the way that she's been transforming and her inability to control that those transformations throughout this issue and sort of throughout the early run of Excalibur. But what is the demon that she's fighting? Is it that lack of sense of self? Is she being promised a different, stronger, more satisfying sense of self? Like, what is the temptation and what is the promise here that has to do with Megan's character? I think she's exhausted. You know what I mean? She's she's in kind of a desperate place where she has no power whatsoever and she's watching things fall apart. Uh, so being given that, that power and agency through submission, uh, which mm-hmm. obviously is a very sexual thing as well, um, mm-hmm. is deeply appealing to her. Yeah, and it's it's this power and agency through the submission and it's power and agency to manipulate those around her. The first thing she does when she has that power is she goes after the men that have been causing her so many complications. She The demons go after Nightcrawler. At her command, she goes and she gets Captain Britain and she's like, oh, nothing's changed with me, but like you're going to go through the ringer, sweetheart, <laughs> um, and pulls him into the movie theater, right? Uh, and it's just getting this moment where she actually has some semblance of control over who she is a moment of clarity where she's like no i'm badass demon and this is what's happening and i'm going to control the world around me if only for a moment and we most directly get her transformation from a good girl into a bad girl right i mean both sort of thematically and visually right and it sort of gets back to her wearing the sexy pajamas at the beginning where she's wearing she always is looking sexy in her pajamas but she's usually wearing you know brian's tank top as we talked about before but in this case she's wearing this lacy black nighty negligee thing and you have the wonderful thought bubble of Kurt being like what's Megan wearing totally to impress Brian totally doesn't suit her and I'm like when did Kurt become the sexy pajamas police <laughs> but anyway that's part of part of him exercising his leadership capacity I'm sure but anyway we get sort of a call back to that you know right that she's sort of adopting this more bad girl sexual identity in an effort to attract Brian's attention and it's not really working right anyway Matt if you were gonna say yeah I, I love Kurt I really do but again I just every time we 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 talk about their relationship I just want to feel like you've known these people two weeks you don't really know what she's like I mean yes I get that you have a crush on her but you're projecting maybe mm. she wears this to sleep all the time and she wears something more conservative when she thinks she's going to see you weird guy who lives in the <laughs> <laughs> on the floor above us right like I and there's there's a bit of well this isn't the real Megan and it's like you don't know who the real Megan is Megan doesn't even know who the real Megan is and it's not like so you know she's got this little this red teddy on and it's sexy but it's not like it's something inappropriate that no woman would ever sleep in you know it's something that 
maybe she sleeps in, maybe she doesn't. But I I think that moment's necessary because Kurt's idea of Megan, much like Brian's, is Megan is my dream girl, right? So that really does set her forward for this place where she's going to become now the sailor's dream girl. And then now, once again, Kurt's very literal reflection to where it makes me wonder, I, I don't know that the Goblin Princess is Nastra's version of this. So, I mean, maybe it is, but she doesn't look like a demon like all the other people in Nastra transformed. So I'm wondering, is what she's become Megan's idea of what sexy badass woman looks like? Is this the truest version? I mean, yes, I get that it's her uninhibited, corrupted by evil seduction, but is this like her version of, if I'm going to be sexy for myself, this is what sexy for me looks like? Yeah, and I mean, that's always the question with Megan, right? You know, when is it his, her desire and when is it not? And that's sort of a question that we're going to keep asking with Megan throughout the series. I'm going to say a slight PR manager Kurt defense for the yeah. sexy pajamas scene in the sense that I think you're absolutely right and that he could be reading into his dream girl version of her and I think that was a really good way of putting it and yet it's also an illustration of the fact because we see this a lot in the early issues of Excalibur that sort of you know action will be going on and people will be having a conversation about things but Kurt is sort of the emotional intel- emotionally intelligent one that's kind of seeing what's happening sort of between the lines mm-hmm. and you know we do have like the expression that Megan's giving there and sort of the pose that she's giving there does just like express a kind of discomfort that Kurt is picking up on even though Brian and Kitty are unaware of it so I did want to just be like I think part of what's trying to be communicated there is that emotional intelligence that is sort of a defining feature of Kurt and we're going to see that come up in sort of similar scenes again and again I think that's true and he's also he's not saying this for himself he's saying this for us you know Kurt yeah, is yeah. Kurt is calling what calling her uncomfort to our tension because it's going to matter later in a way that you know someone has to do it and I guess the book seems hesitant to give Megan thought balloons yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. you know so like at least this this chapter so he needs to call attention to her because maybe she's not conscious of how she's feeling he needs us to know that in a way for later so there's some exposition just going on there that you know and I don't know that it would have been any better if Kitty had said it or, or you know and Brian search Brian can't I don't know that Megan can and I don't know that Kitty should have there so it might just be someone had to say it I kind of like the idea though that Kurt is wrong and projecting as you said Mav because like in that mm-hmm. scene with the sailors he jumps in and he's all shocked that Brian didn't notice that Megan needs rescue but we have Megan's internal dialogue there and she does not express anything about needing rescue right I want to like I want to like them in return is that her or is that her powers and yeah, is and she Kurt's just her powers her I don't know is he projecting this good girl image onto her the exact same way that Megan's powers are kind of doing that mm-hmm. through Brian I agree and yet at the same time if we're gonna think about Megan as someone who has expressed fear about not being able to control her powers and is she comfortable in that sailor scene or is she someone who actually did need help and rescue in that scene because she wasn't able to control her powers and was going to get into an uncomfortable situation and sometimes a friend regardless of gender or whatever's going on needs to do that for a friend Mm -hmm. yeah sure but he doesn't become upset when she turns into a blue elven woman he doesn't (laughs) although that instance of her doing it is like interestingly non-sexual in the sense that they're having a pretty normal conversation about her powers there and she's not being any sexier than usual and it's sort of an emphasis on their face and their dialogue rather than this being sort of a sexual flirtatious scene like we've seen before which at least is something yeah it's a complicated relationship and i think that's the power of the book right like it's the reason we like it is not because kurt is the wonderful absolute good guy and brian's the wonderful absolute bad guy we like them because they're all including megan they're all complicated and flawed 
it's what's the magic of this book they are navigating this yeah for sure and i mean i would say like in terms of me being kurt's pr manager i'm a pr manager for him being likable and complicated but not necessarily <laughs> perfect for sure yeah yeah. Now, Andrew, I know that you want to talk about the baby imagery at the start of the book, and I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So what the heck is going on here? We know thematically this is supposedly because Rachel has some subconscious thing with Nathan, and so she turns Kitty into a baby. We've already talked about them having, you know, obviously a subtextual queer relationship, and at the very least, a very deep friendship bond. So what is going on here with this imagery? So this is um, a very famous kink, particularly in comics. William Moulton Marston, the guy who created Wonder Woman, uh, his entire master's work was on sorority baby parties, which were very sort of um, um, sort of quasi-sexual things that sororities would do where they would dress new recruits up as babies and spank them and stuff like that. And, and Marston was way into it, like way, way into it. And it manifests in Wonder Woman comics, the, the Marston years, really directly. Um, so like this is a well-known kind of sexual kink, and it's a specifically one that's associated with um, lesbianism. So so having Rachel do that to Kitty in their bedroom is, I would argue, not subtle at all. Ah, interesting. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I had thought about the sexual component of it in a basic general sense, but yeah, that puts a finer point on it for sure. Um, I kind of, I want to sort of leave, I think, the introduction of Weird Happenings to our discussion in the next issue, because we're going to get a little bit more into it as we go forward. We're very aware, listeners, that it is an intertextual Doctor Who thing, and we're going to get back to that. But before before we completely run out of time, I just wanted to come back to some of the kind of soap operatic elements of this issue, which I know, Laura, you particularly highlighted as being a high point of the issue. Did we have favorite kind of, you know, character moments or scenes in this issue? And we haven't talked about them stopping on the barge because Kitty has to oh, pee. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, is, that, is... that is literally my favorite Kitty Pride moment in her entire character run. So good. Uh, my favorite, my favorite. Oh, go ahead. oh, it's it's like my favorite moment in comics. Period. Like this couple yeah. of panels where they're just oh like, "Yeah, no, we got to stop this thing because I have to pee, and there's no way I'm phasing it out of me because that would be gross." And like, let's land on a barge in the middle of nowhere because that ship just conveniently happens to be here, and it all lines up. And the bathroom is disgusting. Like it is the worst gas station bathroom you've ever opened the door on, and it's just a perfect moment <laughs> do we think she peed or did she did did she ultimately phase it rather than use the toilet because i'm curious <laughs> I, I i don't know that there's an answer my my favorite again my favorite kitty pride line ever is don't ask not now not ever and yeah. it's just like okay understood uh, like what i love about that is i, I love you know, we talk, you know, you said soap opera. I love the found family aspect of Excalibur. I love that they're working this through. I love that in the, you know, Brian is doing the most boyish thing ever of, well, can't you phase it? You can just, you know, why are you, you know, he's, he's, he's got no concern for her comfort whatsoever she says no because that's who brian is right and then when you know i don't know what she ultimately decided to do i don't know if kitty decided no i'm just gonna hold it till america six more hours whatever or she <laughs> phased it or she used the disgusting toilet and just like i never want to ever mention this again but i respect her asking me not to not to continue it <laughs> <laughs> i have so much respect for kitty Pry. i mean it makes me think about her determination to defeat brian in the next issue i was like does he she have to to pee that entire time does that explain <laughs> some of her motivation there <laughs> 
so good that it's Kitty too, right? In terms of her being sort of a point of view character, sort of like a human character that we can identify with throughout Excalibur. And I can't think of any other moment. And Laura, you brought it, you brought it up. I don't remember any moment before this where I'm like, oh, okay, superheroes use the bathroom. Yeah. And like she addresses it in the, in it's, the most human possible way. It's the most human possible way because she's embarrassed. She doesn't really want to say it. She doesn't want to bring it up. But they're going on like this 12 hour flight across the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, somebody is going to have to pee during that time. And it's that age old question where like every kid goes through it at some point. And like I said, my son went through it right as I was reading this where you go, but my superheroes, my characters on TV, my whatever, they never use the bathroom. But how do they do that? Everybody needs to go to the bathroom sometimes. And it really just is like, yes, superheroes go to the bathroom too. And they go to the bathroom at disgusting rest stops and they just do what they got to do. And then they go on and they kick ass and save the day. Well, this is no less than the third time we've been talking about the significance of bathrooms in Excalibur, because the fact that they only have one bathroom at the lighthouse has come up as a plot point multiple times and will actually come up again in multiple issues. There's at one point their bathroom gets destroyed, and this is the catalyst for Brian breaking. Anyway, we will get to that. I won't spoil it, but well, it becomes not, an important plot the, point. The point when Rachel had her psychic backlash and was, you know, mm-hmm. having her throwing up at the toilet where while Kitty held her hair, you know, it is it is a character building moment and just i mean you talk about the human the humanness of it it reminds me of the tv show 24 which i was a big fan of and it's you know you're seeing 24 uninterrupted hours of jack bauer's life and the producers were asked about that why doesn't jack ever go to the bathroom and and they were like well he does it would not be fun to show you know just assume he's doing it whenever we show any other characters you know (laughs) (laughs) that's the logic but excalibur is not that kind of book Excalibur you're getting the dirty with this you know the like the most fascinating thing that's happening in the story like we keep coming back to is the Kurt Brian Megan relationship you know we're not supposed to normally think about well is there a love triangle between our three I mean we hate on Brian because we're mean on this podcast but he is (laughs) one of our lead you know he is one of the main characters he is a protagonist for this story and we don't like him but there's a naturalness of how they interact with each other that wasn't even present in X-Men. Not really, not in the same way. Um, Which, you know, even under Claremont, different dynamic of the book, not necessarily their relationships, but the book doesn't give us these kinds of moments inside of the melodrama of X-Men the way this does. And we think about the significance of it being here in sort of the height of Inferno, which is the most surreal, like least grounded place to have this moment. And then I think it really speaks to how Excalibur is different from sort of the rest of what's going on in the line at this time, but also how it maintains its identity in the context of this crossover. Andrew, you were going to add something. Uh, I was just going to say that the character voices in that scene are perfect, right? Like So good, so good. Kitty whispering and Megan has to be the one to broach the subject because she's sympathetic to Kitty and Megan will be the outspoken one, but Kitty doesn't even want to ask it. And they give the little tiny font to indicate Kitty's sheepishness about that. Yeah, no, I, no everything about that scene is clicking. It, and then Brian is kind of embarrassed whereas like Kurt is just like nope yep that's what we'll do we'll get this problem done I'm not embarrassed so good so perfect any other sort of little soap operatic little character interaction moments anybody wanted to mention a credit to Kurt's wardrobe again in that piece scene as well the aviator gear it's a nice touch it's a very nice touch considering what what he's doing how he's traveling we haven't talked about Kurt in X-Men 
mostly he was the one character who was in costume most of the time you'd almost think it was part of his body the amount of time at which he wore his you know weird shoulder pad outfit he didn't do civvies you know he did image inducer but he didn't do civilian garb nearly as much as gene or storm or scott or logan this is a huge conversation mav which i have had spent literally (laughs) hours talking with nightcrawler fans about and it is a huge huge thing and it is a huge point of contention with me that of late he has not been shown outside of his costume in about a year currently and i keep track of these things because (laughs) when kurt is always in his costume and the other x-men are out of costume they're in their civilian clothes and he's in his costume that dehumanizes the character in a way that is very unproductive and to have him in casual clothes and to show that that's important for him it speaks to his character in terms of it's important as you said earlier for kurt to feel human for him to feel normal and to always have him in his outfit which is not even just a superhero outfit it's his like trapeze artist outfit from before he joined the x-men i hate when he doesn't put on casual clothes and when he does put on casual clothes it's so 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 important for for building his character and humanizing his character and it, and in what's great i mean you mentioned on a previous episode that this is a point in his life where he is intentionally not using the image inducer so he is creating a normality that works within his monstrosity right like he knows he cannot be normal he cannot be human and he's normalizing it being okay to be other and that happens by you know i'm going to wear sexy pajamas i'm going it's cold so i'm going to wear my snazzy aviator scarf (laughs) and goggles because we're traveling you know oh by the way also you talked about in the scene of the bathroom i love that his method of traveling with with captain britain isn't to be carried with him he's riding piggyback as though he's flying him (laughs) like very snoopy and red baron kind of thing you're going i'd love i love everything about it and then when we switch partners we get both of the we get kurt scooped and kitty scooped kurt being scooped by megan is very charming i must say oh yeah (laughs) but um i like too this is the second time that we've had him like wear pants like where he puts his tail inside the pants which is like an interesting normalizing gesture and then he of course has to take off his pants later to have his superhero outfit on and uh, it's it's getting ahead but they'll be that'll come up as a problem for kurt in a future issue which we will get to before long um anyway any other final thoughts things that we didn't get to that you're desperate to discuss i want to discuss kurt's clothes lots more in future episodes don't worry (laughs) we'll get to the nazi stuff which i think is too long a conversation we'll get to the to the doctor who connection of who you know so yeah for sure and we're definitely going to be talking more about the deeply problematic nature of the nazi version of excalibur don't worry we have much discussion about that planned um the last thing that i wanted to discuss was just that we finally have the sword strokes letters page coming back and we're going to touch in on this as we go (laughs) along because it'll be more of a constant and yes i'm never not amused by the fact that it's called sword strokes the letter i wanted to highlight this week is from sam rowlett address withheld which mav was bringing up how strange it is to see people's addresses printed in the letters page which seems like it creeps me out I, you know, I, I used to read letters columns religiously and then they sort of went away as the internet happened, right? Everyone has the internet. So now you can just talk to your favorite creator on Twitter. They might answer you back. It takes seconds rather than three months. But I had forgotten that they just put people's, you know, Sam Rowlett doesn't give his address, but if you go up or down a letter, you can just go find where these people live. And that's probably a bad idea. <laughs> it was that legacy from sci-fi comics though, right? Where you like sort of develop pen pals and sort of 
communities through the letters pages, but I think it just seems so strange in the context of now, right? Anyway, so this is the letter from Sam Rowlett. Dear mates at Excalibur, he is from the UK. Dear mates at Excalibur, I have to congratulate you guys on the first issue of Excalibur. It was great. I don't want to miss an issue. Nightcrawler is my favorite hero, but there is little I know about him. Here are some questions that might help me get to know him better. What is he? Where is he from? How old is he? Why does he say strange words? I'm from England, he says, helpfully. And now there is a comic book I can fully understand, except for these basic questions about Nightcrawler, his favorite character, apparently. Well, it's time for tea with the Queen, so cheerio. So adorable. I love that the first question is, what is he? (laughs) It's just so cute. Anyway, the response from editor Terry Cavanaugh is, before you drink that tea, Sam, here are the answers to your questions. He is a mutant. (laughs) He is from Germany. He is old enough to vote, and he uses strange expressions of course because he is German and those are German expressions although you'd be forgiven for being confused since he often uses German expressions that don't translate properly because the writers are not German you and the queen may commence tea time ta-ta just adorable I love that letter so much makes me laugh every time I see it or think about it what must I do now kill them I can tell you nothing my days are ending the gods of once are gone forever It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now, more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend, will I see you again? No. (laughs) There are other worlds. This one is done with me. I think we will wrap up and pick up some of these conversations when we look at the second part of this crossover in our next episode in one week's time in Excalibur number seven. Laura, before we say goodbye, is there anything else that you would like to plug for us? Where can our listeners find you if you would like them to find you? (laughs) Uh, so for the geeky comic stuff, they can find me at masked mom review at wordpress.com. Uh, that's where I do my kind of popular culture and comics ranting and tell you all about how horrible kite man is in the Harley Quinn TV show because he is my least favorite character in the Harley Quinn TV show and he just should not exist. Um, he doesn't go into the storyline and it's horrible. Uh, and he takes away all of Ivy's agency. Hey. Anyways, uh, oh, so you can go and I read so all about, about that over there. <laughs> well, you're going to have to read it, Mav. And yes, it. and uh, I'm going to have to book her on my other show just to discuss this. <laughs> <laughs> and I have complicated feelings. <laughs> We haven't been doing this, but does anybody else have anything that's sort of writing or projects that came out lately that they would like to plug directly? I've got a couple. I'll do mine and think about it. I don't think we... Okay. I don't think we do. Okay. Other than my shots. I've got a couple of things that came out lately that are sort of relevant to this podcast. I have got something for Shelf Dust that just came out about Anne Nascenti's Daredevil, which takes place directly in the aftermath of Inferno, so not directly connected, but um, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I also wrote something, a profile for a 
Women's History Month on Anne Nascenti, prolific nice. X-Men Ooh. writer Ooh. and editor. So people can check that out as well. Just my regular stuff. <laughs> Find me on Twitter and podcast apps and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners have found us through Claremont Run. So yeah. <laughs> yes. any chance we have any listeners that aren't already familiar with Claremont Run, please check out Claremont Run. It's the best. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode number seven, in which we're discussing the continuation of this story in Excalibur number seven, Goblin Morn. Kitty fights Brian, Rachel nearly marries a demon, and Kurt befriends a gargoyle. He also says the word ensorcelled, which will never not be funny. A plus vocab for a non-native English speaker, I must say. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard on the pod, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it. Or if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out to us via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another fiery conversation. Thank you, Laura, for lending us your insight, and thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Thank you.